often misquoted line from Shakespeare's Juliet, who asked, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. I think there's still something in a name, if nothing else. The associations that go with names. I think of the process of naming our children. There were certain names that we didn't like. Well, why is that? Likely associations. Just ask seven-year-old Angus Patty how he feels about his name. Or you could ask, I'm a hog, the daughter of James Stephen Hogg, former governor of Texas. You could ask Mr. Chip Stone, who happens to be a sculptor. You could ask the psychiatrist by the name of, yep, you guessed it, Dr. Looney. (laughs) There's also Rex Easley. He's a traffic safety instructor. And, of course, there is the dentist, Les Plaque. You know, Juliet was probably right. A change of name does not change the essence of a thing. However, names do give opportunity for association, certain associations that that may or may not be desired by the one who bears the name. Early this year, some of you probably know, the organization known since 1951 as Campus Crusade for Christ changed its name to Crew. And so we might ask, what's in a name? Well, evidently, for some folks, a whole lot, because there was quite a bit of controversy that was stirred up over the name change. Some people felt that it was a compromise for the sake of political correctness. Others expressed anger over the deletion of the name of Christ. Steve Sellers, who's the vice president for Crew, said, we felt like our name was getting in the way of accomplishing our mission noting that the ministry will still be committed to proclaiming Christ around the world. Now, I don't know what you think about that, but it's that kind of reasoning that that also led to the change of mascot at my alma mater, Wheaton College. The college motto is for Christ and its kingdom. Has been for over a hundred years. And the mascot was the Crusaders. That made them crusaders for Christ and his kingdom. Now, as you know, there is a bit of a dark chapter in the history of the church that had to do with crusaders for Christ. And in an increasingly Muslim world, I can understand wanting to be sensitive about putting the words Christ and crusader together. Like it or not, there are associations that come with those things. And this reality is, I think, even more critical as we push into the third description this morning that the Apostle Peter uses in our text in 1 Peter chapter 2. It is the third of three that he's used so far. First description that he gives to the people of God is what? Anybody? Quick, open your Bibles, make me feel better. Chosen people. Oh my goodness. Chosen people. 
Peter says God's people are a chosen people. Don't forget where, where we went with that. Chosen because we are so doggone charming and cute and indispensable. No, none of the above. Chosen because he loves us. Picked us out of the darkness, brought us into the light of his love and his kingdom and his presence. We are a chosen people. And we said that is not to be any source of pride in our part. It is to be a source of amazement that God would choose me to be his. Chosen people. The second one, that is royal priesthood. Royal priesthood. We talked about the role of the priest and how the priest, perhaps more than anything else that we can understand, was always, first and foremost, concerned about his sin. The idea of going before the God of Israel, the Old Testament being our context, being in the presence of a God who is, as the writer of Hebrews says, a consuming fire, The priest was always concerned that he had made proper atonement for his sin lest he not walk out of the Holy of Holies. So, as the priesthood, the royal priesthood, we are people who are concerned with sin. First and foremost, sin in our lives. Third description we look at this morning, a holy nation. Any associations with those words that might come to mind? I think especially in this election year, there are lots of conversations, different ideas, different opinions, particularly in different realms of of the church and the evangelical world, associations that go with that name or that description, holy nation. We've said all along that Peter uses these descriptions, and and when he does, he's drawing words and images, and I think probably associations, from the history of his people. And this one, this one is huge, I think. In Genesis chapter 12, the nation of Israel began with God's call of Abram. You remember Abram was, as far as we know, an idol worshiper, pagan, living in, in, in the land of the Chaldeans. Go from your country, God said to Abram. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. I will make you into a great nation. Abram was called out of his country and he was chosen by God to be the seed of a new nation that would grow into a presence on the earth that would become a blessing to the peoples on the earth. Very significant statement, I think, about the presence of God's people in the world, both then and and now. And I think that that gives us some ideas as we begin to explore the idea of of what it means to be a holy nation. And our text for this morning I've chosen from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 3. He says something, I think, significant about the citizenship of God's people in this text. 
And nations, as you know, are all about citizenship. Who comprises the citizenship of a particular nation? And so the words that we read this morning together follow that text where probably most of us have have either read it or heard it at some point, where Paul says, essentially, of all the things in life that I've accomplished that were of any value, that were of any worth, particularly from, from the human perspective, Paul says, I count them all as garbage. They are rubbish. They mean nothing compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. Paul says, anything that I was known for, any accomplishments, climbing the ladder, notoriety, it counts for nothing. It is garbage. It is rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ. So let's stand together, prepare to read our text from Philippians. And let me tell you, here's what we're going we're gonna to read just after Paul says these words. I want to know Christ. Apostle says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection, participation in his sufferings, being like him in his death, and so somehow, mystery of mysteries, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. What does he say next? Let's read together. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature, should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. (laughs) Don't you love that line in there? Where Paul says, you know, if you're mature, this is how you're going to see these things. You know, but, you know, if, if you see differently, the Holy Spirit will take care of it. Meaning, he'll bring you back around to the way that I see it because this is from God and this is right and this is how you should... uh, about these things. Quite a description, isn't it, that the apostle gives to the condition of people who are apart from Christ. We're going to explore pretty much just the, the first one today of, of these five. But he says, they live as enemies of the cross. 
They live as enemies of the cross. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. And their mind is on earthly things. Wow. The condition of those who are apart from Christ, the condition of those who are not the people of God. But, Paul says, contrasting word, incredibly important word, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. Here's a question for your neighbor. If our citizenship as the people of God is in heaven, then what does that mean for life now? Kind of an open-ended, broad question. If our citizenship is in heaven, and Paul says this is fact, our citizenship as the people of God is in heaven, then what does that mean for life now on planet Earth? Go ahead, ask your neighbor what they think. Okay, we ready? A lot of good conversation going on here. Okay. What'd you hear from your neighbor? What does our citizenship in heaven mean for life here? What now? (laughs) But it was a question, Zach. (laughs) Okay. Kingdom of heaven here. We live that way now. What else? Okay. 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 You are so right. Spirit of God living in us to live that way as citizens of heaven now. Silence. That is a great observation. So we want to attract people to our way of life. Does that seem a bit arrogant? Okay, okay. Yeah! Okay, good, good. What else? Someone else? Cindy? We're ambassadors. Yeah! (laughs) Paul uses that very word to the Corinthians. Yeah, we are God's ambassadors in this world. Got got kingdom business. We've got got a message to bring. John, you were going to say something. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, and haven't we talked about the destructive nature of sin? We've said, one of the things that we talked about when we, when we looked at being a royal priesthood, we understand that sin is always destructive. Sin is always destructive. It never gives life. It never brings good. And so, as Paul said, it is with tears that I say these things. It is with tears that I say people are still living as if they're enemies of the cross. So yeah, yeah. Ethel, you were going to make a comment.
<laughs> yeah. Exactly. The importance of how we treat people because of who we represent and where we're going. And it was, it was Gandhi who, who said something to the effect of, you know, I, I, I'm really uh, intrigued by Jesus, but, but his followers, you know, I, I have a little trouble with them. What else? Anyone else? Comment, Therese? Yes. just come up here and preach she's good wow wow it is so true it's so true and and we'll do we'll do more with some specifics of that next week but that that's really where we want to be in terms of the value system of the kingdom that we represent and how diametrically opposed it is to the world in which we live especially important i think uh, in, in, in these days, in these times in which we're living. Gary, you were going to add something. Yeah. Good word. Good word. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, where, where is, where is our, our allegiance? And, and so, so simply put, let me just, let me say it this way, expressing so much of what you have said, we need to live on a daily basis we need to live on a daily basis like we really do belong to someone else because we really do belong to someone else. Our lives are no longer our own as followers of Jesus. The greatest misnomer that we face as evangelicals is, is that, that fracture that we sometimes wrestle with over Jesus is Savior and Jesus is Lord. I don't know where you come down on that, but I'm just going to put my cards out on the table and say, if he's not Lord, he's not anything. Because you'll never find Jesus making any kind of an invitation or a call to people that says, hey, I'll be your Savior, you just continue to live the life the way you want to live. Never. It's just nowhere. And so it is, it is Jesus as Lord, so we need to live our lives as if we belong to someone else, and like our allegiance belongs to someone else, our, our hearts. Those are words that we often use at Applewood because we are followers of Jesus. We ask the question, what is it that my heart loves more than anything else? What is it that my heart loves? And so, would you agree that as the people of God we tend to think of ourselves as having an important message for the world. Silence was kind of alluding to that in her, her answer. We do, don't we? We have an important message for the world. We are people of the Great Commission. Jesus told us to go into the world and to proclaim the truth, to preach the gospel, to make disciples. So, none of us is going to argue, I think, with the fact that we have an important message, but... I really believe that in addition to that, we need to think more in terms of 
I don't know, for lack of a better way of saying it, this may sound funny, about being a message by virtue of our existence, by virtue of the fact that we are here, we are the spirit-indwelled people of God living on this earth before a lot of people who are not indwelled by the spirit of God and who don't know our God and who don't love and serve our God. I think we need to, to, to give more emphasis about being a message by virtue of our existence, the lives that we live. Think back to that Genesis 12 text that I read earlier. The blessing that would come to people of the earth through the new nation that began with Abram, we know, we know that that is a reference. We, we, read, we read messianic overtones into that, to that statement. We know that, that Jesus is a part of that blessing to the world. He would be the Savior, the Messiah, who would come from this new nation that God is beginning with Abram. And so we read into that messianic meaning, and, and I don't think that that is, is improper at all, but, but I want to suggest to you as well that, that the blessing also had to do with simply being the people of God and living faithfully according to the law of God, which made them a witness in their world to the nature and character of their God. They didn't do it very well much of the time. But the idea of blessing, I think we need to to understand that that the blessing that is, is talked about, Genesis 12 is sort of a, 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 a timeless idea. It looks ahead to the Messiah, who is going to be God's greatest gift and blessing to a lost humanity. But I think it's possible that when Abram obeyed God and left his family and left his country and followed God to who knows where at that point in his life, there was a blessing to his family and the people that he left behind from the perspective that he was saying something about the character of God and human response to the true God. When God beckons, when God commands, when God exhorts, humanity should listen. People should respond. The idea that there is a God who speaks into the existence of people. Do, do you see what I mean? So there was, there was blessing in the sense that perhaps for the first time, Abram's family and people group got a glimpse of who the true God was. That was, that was also blessing. And so... The, the laws that God then, as the nation began to grow and develop, the laws that God gave to his people made them very distinct. It made them stand out as different among the nations and the different people groups. I think that daily life in the nation of Israel, when it was lived in obedience to God, provided a a visual demonstration to the surrounding nations of a life lived in relationship with God and under His gracious 
reign. God said, I have chosen you as my people because I love you. And God, in his love and his grace, gives himself and, and he, he gave to his people laws that were consistent with his holy character. For years and years, the Israelites had no king. God was their king. They were called to live their lives according to the laws of God, which meant they were called to not live their lives according to their own laws and desires. So they were called to live for God and not for themselves, which is what we can assume the other nations were doing, because they didn't know the true God, which, quite frankly, is really a picture, I think, of the world, both then and now. People are living for themselves. Even even a life of living for others without God at the core as the motivation is a life lived for self. So Israel was to be a light in the darkness. They were to be an example in a world that had forsaken its creator. Does this make sense? Yeah? Okay. And so you probably are sensing where this is, this is going. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, many of us know the, the first statement that is made there. The chief end of humanity is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. I like what Piper says. You know, it's, it's enjoying God by, glorifying God by enjoying Him forever. Versus, you know, kind of like eggs and ham. Um, it's, it's not two statements that can exist separately. We glorify God by enjoying Him forever. The reason we were created, the reason we were created, not because God was lonely, nor because He needed workers to take care of His earth. We were created because it is the nature of God to love and to bless and to give himself. John says in his first letter, this is how we know what love is. God gave. Love gives. Tells us God is love. And so so God created beings in order to love and bless and give himself to them. The greatest gift that God can give to humanity is himself. Because if he gives anything less than himself, then that really makes him the idolater that we are commanded not to be. God wants his people, wants all people to love and adore and exalt him over anything else. So, he created beings who could Respond by enjoying and worshiping Him. Beings with the capacity to live in an eternal relationship of worship with their Creator. Enjoying the inexhaustible depths of His love and beauty and mystery. And Piper also loves to remind us that God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. How many times have we sung those words by Matt Redman? 
And on that day when my strength is failing, the end draws near, and my time has come, still my soul will sing your praise unending 10,000 years and forevermore. It's what we were created to do. You know, and the problem is, is we, we have this image of sitting around on a cloud strumming a harp for 10,000 years and forevermore. And we're thinking, oh, I'm not so sure. Not so sure that sounds glorious. That is not heaven. Heaven is being in the presence of the God who gave himself to you. The God who gave himself for you so that you could have relationship with him. Oh my. I wish I understood this better. So humans are made for God. To live in relationship with him. But because of sin, the vast majority of the people in our world do not know that. And for many, if they believe in God at all, it is that God exists for them. This, my friends, this is the essence of what it means to be a holy nation. Holy means to be separate, to be different, to be set apart distinguished from the crowd. That's what the word means. And and if we only think of holiness in terms of morality, which is is what we tend to do, that's important. Don't get me wrong. The avoidance of sin, if, if that's the only way that we're thinking of holiness, then I think we miss something important that's implied here. For sure, we are people who are concerned about sin. We, we learned that as a royal priesthood. We are concerned about sin. We take it seriously. But what really drives the meaning of being a holy nation is the idea of citizenship. Citizenship that Paul uses to the Philippians and how we understand our life and our responsibilities as citizens in the nation that we are a part of. In other words... How does the character of the king get reflected in our lives together? Make sense? That's really what the idea of of holy nation is driving at. When the world watches, and remember how we said from the beginning that this is a is a is a plural thing. You know, in 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 Peter's letter, he says, but you, singular, are a chosen people, plural. You, singular, are a royal priesthood, plural. You, singular, are a holy nation, plural. The idea that, that there, is, there is not only strength in numbers, there is fellowship in numbers, but there is great, great witness in numbers. And, and the reality is this, that when we deal with some of the values, the value system of the kingdom, and we'll talk more specifically about that next week together, there are times when we're living out the values of the kingdom and the world around us looks at that and goes, that is really weird. Well, that's a lonely place to be if you're the only weird one. But if you're part of a nation of folks who live that way, then you go, oh yeah, that's right. I'm not in this alone. There are others who are walking this path with me. And we are in this together. God sees us together. He loves us together. He blesses us together. It's been over 20 years ago 
don't know if any of you ever read, it was a classic book called Resident Aliens, Stanley Arouas and Will Willimon. And, and they talk about the church as being an island or a community in, in, in the greater society. They insist that the church is inscribed with its own set of virtues. And it can only be learned as one begins to see themselves as church instead of going to church. It's really true. You know, we, we often talk about going to church. We ask people, so where do you go to church? You know, and I just love it. You know, the response is, well, actually, I am the church. But where I worship is, and then, you know, you, you give the address. That, that's, I think that's what we ought to do. Forget it. So, here's a quote. They say, making the gospel credible to the world. Again, witness to the world. Making the gospel credible to the world presupposes that one's worldview is shaped, listen to this, is shaped more by the crucifixion and the resurrection than by the nation state in which it exists. And for the gospel to be understood, it must be found where it is proclaimed and embodied in the church. Citizens of a holy nation, my brothers and sisters, citizens of a holy nation have their worldview shaped by the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus because that is what earned them citizenship in that nation. It is the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus that allows us to become citizens in a holy nation. I think one of the saddest stories in all of Scripture, 1 Samuel, I'd mentioned earlier that for years and years and years, Israel didn't have a king. God was their king. They had only ever been led by leaders that God appointed, representatives who spoke to the people when they heard from God. Moses was one. Joshua was one. There, were, there was a list of judges that you read through the book of Judges. Samuel was the last of the judges. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we read that the elders of Israel came to Samuel and said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Must have been a good day for Samuel. You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us. Listen to this. Such as all the other nations have. But when they said this, when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. And so he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected. They have rejected me as their king. They've rejected me as their king. And in our text, Paul says that that many people, referring to those who are, are not God's people, they live as enemies of the cross. That means that to them, the cross of Christ has no value for their lives. It has no meaning. It has no importance. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we await eagerly for the Savior who's coming from there. The Savior who became that because of the cross. My brothers and sisters, the cross changes everything. The cross changes everything. And it makes us a strange bunch of people if we understand what the cross changes and the life that the cross calls us to. When we understand what Christ has done for us, 
it will change the way that we think. It will change our focus in life. It will change our orientation to self. It will change our orientation to others. The cross changes everything. I think that is, that is the essence. That is the bottom line of what it means to be a holy nation. It is a people of the cross. It is a people who live by the standards of the Savior who died on the cross. And as Sharissa mentioned, it, it, it clashes big time with the values of the prevailing culture in which the church finds itself. It has to. It just has to. And if it doesn't, then the church is not being that holy nation, that presence by virtue of its existence, that witness to the Savior and the cross.